0: Stay tuned next for Resistance Roundtable coming right up.
1: Welcome to the Resistance Roundtable, which comes to you the second Saturday of each month from 10 to 11 a.m., and where we consider the increasingly frightening assaults on democracy under the regime of Donald the John Trump. I like to call him the John because that's really what he is. So just where do we stand at this moment in history? Are we watching the grotesque flailings of a dying clown, or... Are we in the midst of a slow motion coup? We'll discuss this unprecedented situation with our regular panel and our special guests today. Joining us by phone, our regular panelist, Ruth Ann Baumgartner, who teaches English at Central Connecticut State University and is active in the American Association of University Professors. She also directs plays for the Westport Community Theater, which is obviously in hiatus at this point, but we hope she'll be back at that soon someday. Scott Harris is also a regular panelist, and he is the host of CounterPoint, a public affairs show that airs every Monday at 8 p.m. right here at WPKN. He's also the executive producer of Between the Lines Radio News Magazine, a nationally syndicated show that also airs here on WPKN. My name is Richard Hill, and I host First Tuesday Rainy Day Radio. That's uh, from 8 to 11 p.m., first Tuesday of the month. The Organic Farm Stand is another show I host. And I'm also on the roster of hosts for the public issues show, Mike Check, which airs every Sunday at 5.30 p.m. And this week we'll be joined by two guests on the phone. First, John Nichols, the national affairs correspondent for The Nation magazine. And then Andy Ratto, an organizer with Rise and Resist. That's a group that leads mass mobilizations against any government action that threatens democracy, equality, and our civil liberties. Well, we only have about a minute or two before John Nichols will be joining us, but let's check in with Ruth Ann and then Scott for any brief comments that you might have to make at this utterly bizarre moment in our history.
0: Ruth Ann, any comments here as we open up the show?
2: I do. Uh, I do have. Um, I fear the power of the Senate Majority Leader, who controls the agenda and thus decides what issues and House bills will be considered and voted upon. And I hope that in a Senate runoff, Georgia will elect Raphael Warnock and John Ossoff to deny Mitch McConnell that power. Even as minority leader, he orchestrated silent filibusters to, in effect, require a supermajority for any pay- bill to pass. Hence the manufactured complaint I kept hearing during the campaign, that the Dems have done nothing. Go, Georgia.
1: Thanks, Ruth Ann. Scott, any anything from your end of the console there?
0: Well, just two quick things. I, I would say, despite feeling relief that we uh, dodged the bullet of uh, the, the, the prospect of the consolidation of a proto-fascist neo-confederate regime, which I think threatens everybody in this country, even those who uh, supported Trump. I, I'm, I'm happy for that, but I also wake up to the recognition that 73 million people voted for someone who is quite apparently incompetent, to say the least, a mad king of sorts who sabotaged the COVID federal response and is responsible for 130,000 uh, American lives that were lost by the inattention and inaction, and I would say deliberate sabotage of the coronavirus pandemic. And that uh, I say that because it was politically motivated that uh, there was a sense among Trump and his bootlickers that uh, this was uh, going to be somehow advantageous for Trump. Uh, to just ignore and to uh, uh, denigrate uh, any kind of effective response to the coronavirus. So it's horrifying to me that 73 million people voted for someone who's quite apparently a monster.
1: Well, I think that leads right into my point, which is the question of accountability and what we should do about holding Trump and his uh, associates to account after this election. And I heard Masha Gessen the other night on Amanpour & Company, and she called for a national accounting, either a tribunal, a Truth and Reconciliation Commission, or a formal national conversation about the numerous traumas inflicted on the American people by Donald Trump and his associates. The point of this would not be to exact revenge or impose punishment, as much as that might be appropriate, but rather to prevent Trump or another autocrat from reemerging to destroy our democratic system. Uh-huh. And she gave the, the very telling example of Viktor Orban, who has been prime minister of Hungary since 2010. Gessen pointed out that Orban briefly held that office from 1998 to 2002. He was out of office for eight years, during which... There was no accountability for his authoritarian leadership during his, uh, his one prime minister term of four years. And then he came back in 2010, won with a supermajority, and quickly changed the constitution, which allowed him to implement many very right-wing and authoritarian measures and basically destroy a liberal social democracy there in uh, Eastern Europe. So accountability is, I think, the only way that we can actually defend our democracy against that kind of resurgence of what just happened in the past four years. I think we may be ready with our first guest, John Nichols.
0: We're very happy right now to welcome to our program John Nichols. John is the Nation Magazine's national affairs correspondent. He's also a contributing writer for the Progressive Magazine, In These Times, an associate editor at the Capital Times, a daily newspaper in Madison, Wisconsin. Uh, John Nichols, known to you as as the author of many important books. Uh, Some recent titles include uh, Horseman of the Trump Pocalypse, A Field Guide to the Most Dangerous People in America, and his newest book is titled The Fight for the Soul of the Democratic Party. John, it's a pleasure to have you on this morning in this post-election reflection period that we're all in.
3: It's a great pleasure to be with you. I appreciate the appreciate the chance to talk about things.
0: Well, there's so much to talk about, but let's just get your general take on uh, the fact that Joe Biden, as you wrote in a recent uh, Nation magazine article, has won quite a substantial number of votes in comparison to other challenges to incumbent presidents. Uh, it's an historic nature of... The percentage that he got, I'm quite yeah. dis- I'm quite disturbed as I open the program up that 73 million people voted for someone who's quite apparently incompetent and uh, had some <laughs> monstrous policies. But this is this is you here.
3: No, I share I share your concern about the policies and and frankly the track record. But you know we have to understand we are a always a divided country and the level of division may vary. Uh, and the subtleties within it may vary, but the fact is, you know, Barry Goldwater lost horribly for president in 1964, but got roughly 40% of the vote. George McGovern lost pretty badly in 72 and still got about 40% of the vote. You know what I mean? It's, it's, there's a pattern where you have a substantial portion of people always, you know, on the left, on the right. And in, despite all of the concerns about Donald Trump, uh, he was going to get a substantial vote. What's significant, though, is that I think a lot of our media is so obsessed with the Electoral College that they don't pay attention to the popular vote, and they create a false premise. They create a sense that um, the country is evenly divided. It's not evenly divided. The fact of the matter is... uh, Right now, Joe Biden is heading toward about 51 percent of the vote. Now, when you realize that there's scattered votes, or significant votes, actually, for libertarians, greens, other political groupings, uh, that puts Trump down in around the, you know, about 47, 48 percent, that may not seem like a lot. But then when you actually count the votes out, right now Biden's ahead by 5 million votes. It will go way above that, probably a 6, maybe to 7 million vote advantage. And to understand, put it in perspective, he now, Biden's now winning a higher percentage of the national vote than Ronald Reagan did in 1980 when people said, well, this is a transformative election. There's a, a huge mandate for Reagan. He's winning a higher percentage of the vote than uh Bill Clinton did in either of his elections than George W Bush did in either of his elections than uh Jimmy Carter did than Richard Nixon did in 68 than John Kennedy did in 1960 as regards challengers to incumbent presidents Joe Biden is winning the highest percentage of the vote since Franklin Roosevelt beat Herbert Hoover in 1932 so that perspective is important. What it tells you is that Biden has to, in his own head, and frankly, his supporters have to take in an understanding that he did win, and he won substantially. And when you take it over quickly to the Electoral College, right now, Biden's winning roughly fifty-six or fifty-seven percent of the Electoral College votes. Don't look at you know you got a it's a three hundred six to I think two thirty-two split, um, and. But, but think about the percentages there. He's winning 57%. When we compare that number, that means he's winning a higher percentage of the Electoral College than uh, all sorts of presidents who were elected, including George W. Bush. Um, uh, I think is higher than, certainly higher, I believe, than Kennedy, higher than think uh, I think Nixon and 68, you know what I mean? You can run down the list. Uh, you will actually find a lot of presidents who claim mandates, you know, comfortably claim mandates, uh, that, uh, that, and went on to govern quite effectively, major players. And I guess I put that on the table because the Trump people will try very, very hard to do two things. The main, the, kind of like extreme Trump people will try to delegitimize it, as they continually do. But then the mainstream Republicans, who are Trump people at this point, whether you like it or not, the mainstream Republicans will try to peddle the biggest lie of all, which is that you need to govern, you know, with kind of respect for all sides. No, that's not what Franklin Roosevelt did when, when he got, uh, when he beat Herbert Hoover. That's not what Ronald Reagan did when he beat Jimmy Carter. No, he took he took those those presidents, took those victories as mandates to change direction. And frankly, Biden should, to the extent that it is possible, although he's going to face challenges because of the uncertainty of the Senate.
1: John Nichols, this is uh, Richard Hill speaking. I wanted to ask you the other night I I had mentioned earlier in my little spiel that uh, I saw Masha Gessen this week on Aminpour & Company. And she and Christiane were sort of talking about the election as well, if Biden takes office, this, is, this may happen and this may happen. And, you know, I mean, it just sort of raised this alarm. And I think all Americans are feeling it. Are we watching the final act of, of the Trump clown show, or is there a slow motion coup in process here? Well,
3: that's a good question, right? Because, of course, with Trump, that's always the, the range of possibility, right? most presidents operate within a rather narrower, narrower zone. And so you know that that the standards and practices of the Republic are going to hold pretty much as expected. With Trump, because he is such an extreme figure, and frankly uh, a figure who is so disrespectful of democracy itself, you always hold out these possibilities of, of troublesome results. And what I would suggest to you is that I have very little faith in donald trump i don't think that he would do the right thing if he had an option to do the wrong thing his entire career suggests that if there's a way for him to get what he wants by doing the wrong thing he'll do it right so in that sense you have to always be wary of how he will seek to manipulate uh whatever circumstance he's in with that said with that said and with a a very strong endorsement of the wariness I will suggest that, yes, we are on the clown show side. Um, And the fact of the matter is that the president has been beaten substantially. And that's why we go through those figures up front. The, The big defeat is what matters. If it was a close race, I think the possibility that this president and the people around him, and frankly, leadership of the Republican Party, even people that don't like him, would manipulate the process in every way they could, to gain an advantage, just as the Bush family and their allies did in 2000 in the Bush v. Gore fight. That was a close race. This, What we've got now is not comparable in any sense. And so while I think that Trump is trying to play something out, hes it's more like throwing things at the wall and seeing if anything sticks. His legal strategies, the lawsuits, have been highly unsuccessful. His attempts to get state legislatures or state legislators to buy into a concept of, say, flipping electoral votes, even if it's illegitimate, has not gotten much traction around the country. Uh, And frankly, he looks absurd at this point. And I don't expect that mainstream Republicans are going to rush to tell him to you know, back off and to stop. But slowly and surely, as we move through this normal process after a surprisingly successful election, uh, considering coronavirus and everything, I think that uh, Trump will be more isolated, seem more absurd. And my sense is that around the time of the uh, Safe Harbor Day, which is December 8th, that's when states have to have their counts uh, certified canvassed recounted if necessary uh to prepare for the electoral college on december 14th i think around there is when you're going to see some clearer acknowledgement by trump that it's over um and then that will be the launch of his 24 2024 presidential campaign my god oh <laughs> guaranteed that that yeah. I, I promise you that one wow it's,
2: yeah. it's well, not this just is john an... this is Ruthanne. Um, I was particularly interested, for for this reason, in your piece in the Nation about impeaching uh, William Barr at this point, yeah. because because we know that Trump doesn't read, and certainly he doesn't read legal documents. But it seems as if ever since his confirmation as the wise moderate candidate for for uh, whatever he is, Attorney General, uh, he's been. And creeping around inside the dark sentences of the law, looking for things that can be brought forward and used to the advantage of Trump. And he's the one I really worry about here.
3: You should. Yeah, yeah. There's no question. And, you know, one of the things that if we're conscious and we pay attention to what's going on, we realize that they're making their moves. It's just their moves aren't very successful. Mm-hmm. and and so that's why we should always have the wariness uh about it all. Uh Barr made his move this last week when he said in a memo to US attorneys and federal prosecutors across the country that they should be looking for voter fraud, right? And it was a it was an oddly worded memo that suggested perhaps in some ways Barr was simply trying to curry favor with Trump, but the fact of the matter is it did lay out that possibility of effectively weaponizing the federal government and our federal uh, Department of Justice as a tool for advancing a completely false and and dangerous political argument, i.e., that there's a lot of fraud there wasn't and and it isn't there. But Barr did make his play, and and I think that we have to always be conscious of the fact that Barr, who is an able lawyer—not uh, one I agree with—but an able lawyer, will always be looking for avenues to mount challenges to use uh, the, par- the Department of Justice, which is supposed to serve the American people, not the president, um, as a as a vehicle for the president. So I definitely think, as I said in my piece. That the House of Representatives should move an impeachment resolution and and seek to um, hold him to account, knowing that the Senate won't take it up, that's fine. I mean, I I shouldn't say that's fine. I I would wish the Senate would, but that that doesn't detract from the value of a clear impeachment repudiation of William Barr for the things that he's been doing. And Steve Cohen, the congressman from Memphis, uh, has a, a good resolution in play for investigation and impeachment. Uh, Elizabeth Warren has brought the issue up and others. Uh, so this is not a, I would argue, this is not a radical idea. In fact, it's a, a very appropriate use of the impeachment or to highlight wrongdoing by an official.
0: We're speaking with John Nichols, national affairs correspondent with The Nation magazine here on Resistance Roundtable. Uh, joined here, Scott Harris by Richard Hill and Ruth Ann Baumgartner. John, I, I wanted to touch briefly on your uh, recent article uh, titled Joe Biden's Presidency Depends on Georgia, written with uh, Joan Walsh in The Nation. And uh, first of all, I, I think there was a lot of disappointment among Democrats Uh, that there wasn't a resounding repudiation of Trump and the Republican Party that uh, enabled him all these past four years. So there were losses for the Democrats in the House of Representatives. They're going to have a narrow majority, and they didn't pick up the Senate seats they needed to control the U.S. Senate. Now we have these two uh, very critical uh, runoff elections for Senate seats in the state of Georgia. Uh, And uh, I think a lot of people were surprised that Georgia did come out and vote for Joe Biden, a 14,000-vote majority there, it seems, although there's a recount. So, Mm -hmm. two-part question. Uh, Why do you think the Democrats uh, didn't come through on what everybody uh, pollsters thought was going to be a blue wave? And uh, certainly want to talk about the importance of these runoff elections in Georgia.
3: Sure. So, first part of it, the Democratic Party continues to be an incoherent party. It does not have a set of touchstones that it, it goes back to on a regular basis and emphasizes at a appropriate level uh, to develop a sort of top to bottom ticket Full ticket voting that Republicans have developed, and uh, as a result, you do see situations where Biden may win a place, and yet a, a Democrat uh, fails or doesn't win. Part it isn't necessarily that everybody who voted for Biden then went and voted for a Republican. It can just be a drop off where you know you have a lot of vote in the presidential level, and people just don't go down that ballot and cast mm-hmm. the additional votes. But whatever the phenomenon is, it is a, it is a genuine reality, and so that's something to understand that that. You know, when you run a campaign just against Donald Trump, the only message you have is that you, you want to get rid of Trump. That's effective at the presidential level, but it doesn't necessarily translate down to uh, Senate races, House races, state races. So that's a serious issue that the Democrats should be thinking about. They also need to be thinking about how to get an issue balance appropriate, and they're not very good at that. Um, to give you an example, in Florida, Joe Biden lost Florida by a substantial margin, roughly 400,000 four votes. I, I'd have to count, look at where the current count is, but, but it, was a, it was a serious defeat in Florida. Um, in fact, if I think back, it may be a little narrower than that, but but was in the hundreds of thousands of votes. By the same token, um, the referendum in Florida for a $15 wage won overwhelmingly. Well, $15 wage is a core democratic issue. It's in the platform. It's something that, that they should be emphasizing all the time. And frankly, they just didn't. And as a result, um, you know, you saw this, this disconnect there. And I think you have to think about that in places around the country where, again and again, you see the issues are very popular. Expanding health care, government actually stepping in to deliver health care. A green new deal, or at least a major initiative to address uh, climate issues, uh, racial justice—all of these things pull very, very well. Addressing policing pulls very, very well, and yet somehow the Democrats don't translate that effectively. So they got—they have to think a lot more effectively about how they do what they do. Now, as regards Georgia. George is a huge deal because even with the mistakes and, and stumbles of the 2020 campaign, the Democrats have been left with an opportunity to get control of the Senate. Georgia gives them the chance to pick up two seats. That would then be a 50-50 split, which uh, Vice President Kamala Harris could break uh, in favor of the Democrats. That would open the door, uh, perhaps not for the most robust Biden agenda that some people had hoped for, but at least for doing a lot of major stuff. And it would dial down many of the avenues for obstruction, not all of them, but many of the avenues for obstruction that Mitch McConnell might utilize. So the Georgia vote is the critical definitional vote for the biden presidency and everybody has to recognize that and can it be one there's simply no question it can be uh... it's within the realm of possibility but it will be hard and that's an important thing to understand in runoffs, historically in georgia democrats have not done as well as in regular elections and so there really has to be a kind of a beefing up and energizing of uh... the democratic operations down there they happen to be lucky. They've got two excellent candidates, John Ossoff and Reverend Raphael Warnock, uh, both of whom did very, very well as candidates in the initial voting, and uh, appear to be recognizing the the importance of running as a team going forward to pool their strengths. Uh, Ossoff very strong in some of the suburbs of Atlanta and other cities. Warnock has built a very strong urban-rural coalition that mobilizes a a lot of people around the state. Put that together, and you actually do have a a very credible and potentially winning uh, ticket, if you will, in in Georgia.
1: John, I wanted to ask you about this uh, rift that's been played up quite a bit in the media between the mainstream, I guess you could say, centrist Democrats led by Nancy Pelosi in the House and the more progressive wing of the Democratic Party. There's been this kind of food fight happening where the the, uh, mainstream Democrats are, are saying oh, you guys screwed us up because, you know, you were talking about defunding the police and the Green New Deal, and you got us painted with the brush of socialism in these tight uh, races in purple dates and purple districts. What do you make of that? What kind of currency or credibility do you give to that argument from the uh, mainstream Democrats against the progressives?
3: Yeah. It's a bogus argument, um, and, and it's one that is advanced, I think, by people who— want to achieve political ends by blaming someone for a relatively normal result and and this is when i say relatively normal result that's that's something that you have to have a little historical perspective on but understand when richard nixon in 1972 as an example won a landslide majority uh over 60% of the popular vote winning 49 states only losing massachusetts and the district of columbia The Democrats still lost, or still won, two Senate seats. They picked up two Senate seats, even as Nixon was having this landslide. And the Democrats also had significant advances in a number of states across the country. It's interesting to note that in 1972, one of the two Democratic Senate candidates who beat a Republican incumbent was a young guy, 29 years old, named Joe Biden. And so there's a lot of history of these of elections where you get the presidential to go one way, but down-ballot, it doesn't necessarily hold pattern. Now, that can be a whole bunch of reasons for that. But I want to really strongly emphasize that, again, when we look at the exit polling, what we find is that expanding access to health care, including having a government role in doing that, uh, providing for uh, taking real steps to address uh, the climate crisis, uh, including very, very aggressive steps that relate to a lot of what we've seen in the Green New Deal, and uh, addressing police violence and systemic racism in policing, but also in society, all of these moves, all these steps are popular. They pull well. They pull well in the Fox News poll. And so to try and blame people who advocate for economic and social and racial justice, for saving the planet and for peace, for somehow making it hard for Democrats to win, it begs the question, what do Democrats want to win on? I mean what exactly is their their touchstone and the reality is the reality is that were it not for progressives uh like Ilhan Omar in Minneapolis and Rashida Tlaib in Detroit and Mark Pocan in Madison and surrounding areas in Wisconsin and Gwen Moore in Milwaukee and all the great grassroots organizing groups in Pittsburgh and Philadelphia and other places including Democratic Socialists of America and others if they hadn't been out there doing the grassroots organizing work and doing the, the push to get people registered, mobilized, get them voting, make sure the votes were counted—you uh, wouldn't have seen this this Biden win, especially these narrow wins in places like Wisconsin. Those came because progressives worked hard and did the job. And so, instead of blaming progressives in the party, what the more moderate forces ought to understand is: yeah, you can have debates. You can have real honest debates about how to address issues, and they can take their stand, the progressives can take their stand. But to try and point a finger of blame uh, for a result that A, is not that uncommon, and B, uh, is not, for the reasons that they're suggesting, is incredibly wrongheaded. And it's, it's frankly the way that status quo politicians try to maintain their power.
0: Well, John, thank you so much for spending time with us. I know you've got to run off to another event, so we do very much appreciate having you uh, give us a post-mortem on the
3: 2020 election. A lot more to come. Well, I'm honored to do it, and, and thanks for this good show. I, I always enjoy the conversation with you folks.
0: Well, we're, we're honored to have you here. Thanks, John. Appreciate it. Okay. Take care. Bye-bye. That's John Nichols' uh, National affairs correspondent with The Nation magazine. His most recent book is titled The Fight for the Soul of the Democratic Party.
1: So we're going to get ready for our next phone guest, and he'll be with us in just a minute. And just to tell you who that is again, that it would be Andy Ratto. He's an organizer with Rise and Resist, a group that leads mass mobilizations against any government action that threatens democracy, equality, and our civil liberties. He'll be with us in just a minute, Ruth Ann. As we uh, consider what John was, John Nichols was talking about, and and some of the things we didn't get to with him, I just wondered if Trump is not actually angling to stay in office here. If this is all just kind of gaslighting the American people, what do you think his motivation is? Do you think that there, this is just the literally the kind of vindictive toxic behavior of somebody who's trying to spoil the moment (laughs) take away our sense of jubilation that he was defeated and put us all you know ready to poop in our pants you know that thinking that he's going to somehow stay in office like what do you think it's all about
2: well, you know, I I think the, the playground metaphor always comes in handy when you're thinking about Trump's behavior, and it certainly seems to be like a, what, fourth grader or fifth grader on the playground uh, throwing a tantrum. But I think also uh, he's motivated by something that motivated him to go to run for president in the first place, and that is... You know, our friend, the root of all evil, uh, money. As a matter of fact, in our household, we just got an email yesterday from uh, Newt Gingrich, I think, telling us how desperate it was to send Trump some money so that he could fight to keep the presidency and offering the incentive that Trump himself would match any donations a thousand percent, which which means send us a dollar we'll we'll give you back ten or we'll put in ten, and wouldn't that imply that we don't really need the money um, I think it I think we do really need the money we've seen Trump loot charitable funds, uh, his fake college funds we've seen him uh, using going everywhere on his own properties so that the the uh, cost of the Secret Service would flow into his own accounts. Uh, I think it's all money, and then this is uh, gin up another. Give me more money, and uh, we notice that all his appeals right now are no guarantee that this money is going to go toward a campaign. It might go for other uses. I think he's just he owes so much, and we have to wonder how much to Russia. So I think he's just trying to make uh, to raise some more funds.
0: Well, thanks for that, Ruth. Uh, Right now, I'm very happy uh, to welcome to our Resistance Roundtable program uh, Andy Ratto. He's an organizer with the group Rise and Resist. Uh, based in New York. And Andy, uh, very happy you could join us this morning. Uh, just briefly tell us a bit about your organization, Rise and Resist, and, and your agenda right now in this post-election period where uh, Trump has yet to concede. And there are a lot of uh, a lot of very strange going-ons in the Pentagon regarding firings. And you've got a lot of, uh, of the Trump supporters in the streets of Washington, D.C. today, some of them armed. It's a very uh, interesting <laughs> time to see the least in america
4: yes um rise and resist started about four years ago right after the um, 2016 election of donald trump and part uh, we were part of the wave of so-called resistance groups that sprung up across the nation and you know we had our, our key values of resisting any sort of government um tyranny, overreach, brutality, discrimination, hate, um, unethical behavior, <laughs> etc., stemming from Trump. And, you know, we took those same values and we've applied them to organizing in New York State and New York City as well. And so in this kind of moment of, um, you know, post-election Uncertainty that transitioned into a very clear Biden win. Um, Rise and resist was out in the streets as part of what's called the Protect the Results Coalition, uh, which was an effort to make sure that Trump and the Republican Party would not be able to steal the election in any way. Um, And so we participated in two street uh, street actions. Um, geared towards resisting any um, sort of fraud or malfeasance regarding the election results. And we're really continuing to monitor the situation um, regarding Biden and the transition. Um, We were also the organizers of a protest yesterday at the Jones Day law firm offices in New York City um, as part of a, a nationwide Um, pressure campaign against Jones Day, Porter Wright, King Spaulding, and any other law firms that may be working to assist Trump and the Republican Party in muddying the results, um, undermining our democracy, and trying to steal the election. Um, And so that's something that we continue to monitor as well. Um, And we've seen some really positive results in terms of of law firm responses to this pressure, um, backing off of some of these lawsuits, making clear that um, they're not willing to side with Trump and the Republican Party to do this kind of long-term damage to democratic elections in the United States, um, and set the ground um, perhaps in in 2024 or in the future of trying again to mount this this kind of slow-motion coup. Or undermine the results Um, and so that's something we're keeping our eye on as well and you know we're we're, again you know for the future looking to take the values that we had in place during the Trump administration and say how can we continue to apply these to um, a future Biden administration to a Democratic House and to the Senate as well when those results come in Um, and so our, our fight for Everyone having access to health care, um, a just immigration system, um, our focus on the climate emergency are all going to remain important and relevant over the coming four years um, with a President Biden just as they were with a President Trump. And so, you know, these are conversations that are just kind of happening now and in a, in a practical sense, um, as we saw the results of the election. But the values that we bring to this fight um, are something that, that are very clear for us and will motivate us in the years
1: ahead. Andy, this is Richard speaking. I wanted to ask you, what is the scope of the coalition that you're working with that could mount mass mobilizations if you've deemed that they were needed? I think there was some anticipation or much anticipation by people that actually spontaneously appeared in uh, cities all over this country the minute the election was called for Joe Biden, that there would be the need for a huge demonstration to push back against attempts to steal this election for Trump. What's your assessment of that prospect at this point, but also what other organizations and what kind of mass mobilization are you capable of mounting if that were to actually start to become uh, more manifest?
4: Yes. So I'm most familiar with the Protect the Results Coalition in New York City, which has around 100 groups that have signed on, Um, and like I said, our, our first big action Um, was a march in Manhattan. We went from the New York Public Library uh, to Washington Square Park um, with a major street protest. Um, The National Coalition, I believe, is led by some of the mainstream kind of liberal um, resistance groups like Move On and Indivisible. Um, And from, from what I understand, so far the national leadership is cautiously optimistic that things seem to be going um, as expected for a confirmation of biden's victory and then a transition to a biden presidency um Mm -hmm. trump is clearly unhappy about that i think trump would prefer to subvert democracy if he could um, but his options seem quite limited um the courts have been rejecting wholesale basically every suit that Republicans have filed regarding these matters, um, and the remaining suits aren't really, it looks like, um, capable of of changing enough votes um, to have an impact on the election results themselves. Um, The military has, uh, you know, military leaders have been speaking out saying there's not a role for the military in this process, that um, they're not willing to intervene, um, and it doesn't seem likely that a military-backed coup would be uh, possible. Um, And state legislatures um, of some of these battleground states um, are not doing or saying the sorts of things uh, that would make it it likely that they would be able to overturn the results, um, such as these state legislatures appointing their own slate of electors. Um, And so for those reasons, I think that um, the National Coalition is... Is willing to um, stand by and allow the Biden uh, the uh, future Biden administration to kind of set the terms um, of this moment um, and to focus on a Biden transition, um, and so that seems to be um, moving ahead slowly um, with a lot of, I think, uncertainty about when briefings might become available, um, what level of cooperation will happen, et cetera. Um, But that's not a problem that I think is going to lead to um, a national mobilization of this Protect the Results Coalition. Um, I think there'll be um, more targeted actions perhaps um, at the Government Services Administration, at key um, appointees and bureaucrats who may be Holding up the process or styming the transition, um, but at least for now, um, I think there is a feeling that you know we have capacity to mobilize. That people have been planning for this, um, that they're ready to engage, um, but we are standing by. Um, I think in a situation where it looks like um, the Biden transition is very slowly uh, proceeding along um, as people would like it to.
0: Andy, I, I did want to uh, ask you sort of a, a more long-term question. We have seen over the past decade, and certainly in this uh, election in 2020, uh, the Republican Party pulling out all stops in terms of, in terms of voter suppression. Uh, you know, we've got a long history of gerrymandering, a massive voter purging, really undermining the very foundations of democracy. What is it, in your view, that uh, the Biden, the incoming Biden administration must do in terms of restoring a democracy and uh, taking the, the kind of uh, toxic um, uh, agenda of the Republicans trying to uh, shrink the vote so they can win elections? It just seems that that is uh, an overriding priority for people, uh, not of any particular party, but people who just want to have a... a a nation uh, that is uh, f- honoring democratic principles rather than this uh, this kind of full-tilt uh, effort at uh, authoritarianism where a minority party controls the government.
4: Yeah, it's one of the great challenges that I think we'll be facing in the coming years um, as the Republican Party has made clear that they have no principled support For the very concept of democracy, I think that they want power, they want authority, they want control, um, and they have no desire to um, allow democracy to interfere with those goals. Um, And, you know, some of that is a state level issue, um, and some of that is a federal issue. Um, It's heartening to see. Uh, some limited positive results um, that have been happening recently, especially uh, Stacey Abrams um, and her work in Georgia, um, who you know looked at the election um, that she participated in um, in Georgia for the governor's race and saw the way that, that voter suppression um, may very well have cost her the election and said— um, and she just said, I'm going to get to work um, and do what I can to register voters and expand access um, to the polls in order to try to overturn that, that sort of suppression. Um, and I think a lot of Democrats are now looking at her and saying, what can we learn um, that we can apply to other states or that we can bring to the federal level? Um, you know, for me personally, I've um, I think started to be more precise in my language. I no longer think about America as having free and fair elections. Um, I think that we are are in a fundamentally unbalanced playing field where we go into each cycle with Republican leaders doing the best they can to limit voters, um, suppress voters, gerrymander the system, um, in order to try to uh, maintain what is looking increasingly like minority party rule in America, um, and so there's going to be you know fights up and down um, the um, you know the states and at the federal level, um, and I think especially now potentially at the Supreme Court as this. Um, emboldened conservative majority can just continue to chip away at our rights and so um you know whatever the issue that motivates democrats whether it's health care the environment immigration i think we need to be aware that it's not just enough to um, convince people to, to join our side to motivate them around these issues if we're going to lose elections in a fundamentally unfair and undemocratic system. Um, and that the, the top-level priority needs to be identifying what reforms um, would strengthen our democracy in order to um, create a system where we can then channels people, channel people's support um, for these issues, for this change, into actual real results at the ballot box. Um, and, you know, Rise and Resist, I think, um, is going to be looking to that leadership um, and to those um, politicians and groups, which are going to be identifying and putting out some plans and saying, what is the congressional legislation that we need to focus on and what are the state level reforms. Um, that would allow a more free and more fair election system, um, because that's not something that we currently have in the United States. Um, We have a Biden victory in spite of the suppression and in spite of um, these um, efforts by the Republican Party, um, but that is not something that we can rest idly by, um, especially with the recent census and the redistricting Um, Because Republicans control more um, states at the state level and are likely to initiate another round of of gerrymandering in Mm -hmm. 2020 um, and fighting another 10 years on an unfair battlefield like that Um, is just going to spell doom, I think, for any possibility of large-scale Democratic reform. (laughs)
1: Andy, I wanted to ask you more of a strategy question. Now, there's a demonstration scheduled for today, probably beginning to occur right now as we speak. In Washington, it's a right-wing demonstration, which is bringing together all kinds of toxic forces in the political landscape, militia groups, Proud Boys, the Boogaloo Boys, and all kinds of other more, I guess, camouflaged allies of theirs. This could be a mass demonstration. We we don't know how it's going to actually play out. But I'm wondering, on a strategy level, whether you think it would be necessary for the pro-democracy forces in this country to have mass demonstrations just to present the face and the energy of those 80 million people who are apparently voted for Joe Biden, to keep that in the focus of the national consciousness and the media. That's one question. The other question is, is there some point at which, I think you kind of alluded to this, but that these kinds of protect democracy movements could actually be focused on, let's say, targeting the Senate, for example, if the Democrats don't take back control, to actually have civil disobedience at the Senate office buildings, the organs of government that are basically subverting our democracy and turning it into minority rule, completely in the face of what is clearly a majority of people who want? substantial change in this country. So I guess it's kind of a two-track question.
4: Yeah, to your first question, it's challenging in the moment because of what seems to be a really dramatic um, escalation in the coronavirus pandemic. And um, more and more states are looking to go into increased restrictions on gatherings Um, to really try and limit the the spread of um, the coronavirus. And, you know, we've seen, I think, a lot of evidence that large outdoor gatherings um, where everyone wears masks, use hand sanitizer, and try to respect social distancing um, are reasonably safe. Um, that That the Black Lives Matter protests, for instance, did not seem to drive any sort of of large-scale spike in coronavirus. Um, But the risks are not zero, Um, and it's sometimes helpful to even send the message um, that we do need to respect, um, you know, the threat of this virus just for people who are wanting to, you know, go to a restaurant or have a family gathering, don't feel like they're receiving any sort of mixed message. Um, and I think what that means is it's really incumbent upon the media um, to make clear what the results of the election were—that um, it wasn't particularly close, that there was a, a large um, popular vote advantage um, for Joe Biden and a, a substantial um, electoral. College victory as well, um, and that, you know, 1,000 or 2,000 of these kind of MAGA, alt-right, um, fascist-adjacent folks gathering in D.C. Um, are just a, a tiny um, minority, even of the Republican Party or even of, of Trump voters, um, and not to blow it out of proportion and not to act like, um, you know, that we're a 50-50 nation um, because we're not <clears throat> we're not a 50/50 nation um, Trump and his supporters are, are clearly at this point the minority um, and you know that's a story for the media to tell and we don't have to have you know 50 state gatherings of Biden' supporters cheering and celebrating in order for the media to make clear um, what happened with the election results um, and so you know, personally, I don't really feel the need um, to kind of turn out as a, as a pro-Biden or a you know, pro-democracy supporter um, in New York City. Um, I do, of course, um, celebrate and support anyone on the left who is going to be out in Washington, D.C., um, resisting that gathering. Um, I think we need to meet those people every time they try and mobilize um, in the public space both to protect the potential targets um, of these um, right-wing gatherings who will regularly engage um, in violence against minorities or, or other of the populations um, that they attempt to attack, um, as well as to signal um, you know, to the media in coverage of that event that these sorts of gatherings um, are not welcomed, that they will be resisted, um, and that you know their, their momentum will be stopped. Um, to your second point, um, you know it looks like we we could very narrowly pull off a tied Senate um, or um, you know Georgia may elect either one or two of the Republicans on the ballot. Um, and then we're gonna face a very challenging situation because um, Mitch McConnell will be well positioned to engage in, obstruction um, of any aspect of the Biden agenda, whether it's legislation, whether it's staffing his government and his cabinet, um, or whether it's any Supreme Court openings. Um, And, you know, a lot of these Republican senators are well insulated. They come from red states. um, And, you know, they may not have an election for four or six years in the future, um, and so it's challenging to successfully apply pressure to them. Um, you know, we saw, for instance, with the healthcare battle, that it's not impossible um, that, that really dedicated activists from all over the country converged in Washington during the fight over um, the ACA or Obamacare um, and were able to, um, you know, narrowly convince a couple senators, a couple Republican senators. To oppose those um, Trump administration efforts, um, you know, led by the most directly impacted people, um, including um, organizing and, and mobilization from disabled organizers um, who were really on the front lines for that particular battle, um, and give a bit of a blueprint, I think, as we look to the future ab- <clears throat> about what that sort of pressure um might take um, in terms of engaging these Republican senators. Um, But if Mitch McConnell is going to play his standard obstruction game um, and slow things down and not hold votes um, and, you know, really decide to put party over country um, and harm so many Americans um, in that way... Um, it's going to be very challenging. And, you know, certainly that's a situation where I would defer to some of the experts of this sort of of legislative strategy, whether it's from Indivisible or others, to kind of map out what they see as a way forward. Um, At least in in New York City, um, you know, we're going to be looking to uh, Senator Schumer, if he remains majority leader, of course, um, to do everything possible in his capacity Um, majority leader or minority leader, I mean, um, to, you know, assist the Biden administration, to try and force McConnell's hand um, and to push for the sorts of of legislative changes we would like to see. Um, But it may also be a situation where the pressure needs to be on Biden to uh, use what unilateral power he has as the president um, to use executive orders or to use other sorts of executive power um, to push for changes, if it turns out that McConnell is, is unwilling to negotiate or is unwilling to participate in the normal functioning of government. Um, and I think a lot of us are worried about the way Biden talks and thinks about Republicans as okay. negotiating partners, as, as good faith representatives, etc., um, okay. that does not seem to be the case.
1: John Ratto, we want to thank you very much for joining us today. We uh, are coming up against the clock. And uh, uh, so John Ratto, organizer with Rise and Resist. Andy Ratto. Uh, I'm sorry. Andy Ratto. My bad. And uh, once again, thanks so much for being with us here on the Resistance Roundtable. uh, Thank you. For Scott Harris. Uh, Ruth Ann Baumgartner and myself, Richard Hill, we thank you for joining us all. And uh, we'll be back in a month with more conversation about the national political landscape. Stay tuned for Barricada coming up next. This is WPKN in Bridgeport, 89.5 FM and streaming online at WPKN.org.